glad to glad to have everybody here today and uh, hope your week is going well. I think we had snow earlier this week, right? And now it's almost shorts weather. So uh, almost next week, Gerard. Next week. <laughs> if you have a prayer card. Uh, we can collect those at this time, and uh, if not, we'll, uh, we'll have another opportunity later. Um, also, if you missed picking up a uh, communion cup as you come in, now's a good time to grab, uh, grab one of those. So... Um, Felicia, don't go anywhere. <clears throat> Come here, please. <laughs> Anybody else want to get a communion cup? <laughs> excuses, excuses. All right, so uh, last, last Sunday, uh, Felicia met with the elders and myself and uh, talked about some of the things and changes that are going on in her life, and uh, we're very glad to welcome her as a member here at Lawson Road, and... Uh, uh, many of you know her and uh, from, from Central and, and different places. I mean, starting at Central and Lawson Road and Southside and all, all those places. But uh, we're, uh, we're, we're glad that uh, we're here to, to, for the next phase of whatever it is. And, uh, and we're looking forward to being family. And uh, we've always been family. We're just in the same building now. So thank you very much. <laughs> so... <laughs> The other, other piece of information I want to, want to give you is uh, short notice. I know if we can go to the next slide. Thanks, Anne, and then we'll get my clicker going. This is March, which means it's our month of fasting. And if you've been here a few years, you know what it's about. If you haven't, then let me take a moment just to fill you in. For long and irrelevant reasons, um, we have started way back, I don't know, 2010, 2011, somewhere there, started making March a month of prayer and fasting. And the way we do this is that each, uh, the Monday, so it's not fasting for a whole month, right? We're not trying to do 30 days without food. Um, so, but on each Monday in the month, we are, um, we fast, okay, as, as a group. We're encouraged to fast. Nobody's checking up. Nobody's making anyone do anything. And, and fasting is, you know, historically, traditionally, it's associated with food, right? So if you choose to go uh, all day Monday or from sunrise to sunset without food, uh, that's a, a way of fasting. Uh, but it can be from a, a wide variety of things. Um, I've known people uh, fast from their phones for a day. That seems a little cruel, but some people even fast from coffee or caffeine for a day, which I know is inhumane, but they do it. Um, for, for some folks, it, it might be um, television or, or particular things. It could be a particular food such as chocolate. And, and so what the point of, let me just say what the point is, it doesn't matter so much what 
the item is that we fast from. The purpose is that it's something that we tend to do regularly during the day and that when we don't do it, now we're prompted to think of God. Now we're prompted to, to think of, of talking to God. And sometimes we may have a particular um, prayer. It can be like a breath prayer. We might just say, thank you, God, for something. Okay? And, and it could be the same thing. It could be a different thing. So every time you, you walk past the bowl of chocolates on your kitchen counter and you're tempted to grab one, it's like, no, I'll leave that. But instead, I'll say, thank you, God, for the food that I have. I'll say, thank you, God, for, and I can do something different every day. Or, or I'm tempted to grab for my phone, and instead of grabbing for my phone, I, I say a prayer for one of my family members, or for something I'm going through. Help me with this. Help me with that. Pray for that person. And so we have these prayers that don't have to be 10 minutes at a time, but just prayers that point us to God. It could be a verse that you want to memorize, and, and, and it could be a psalm. And you say, I want to memorize this, so each time, you know, instead of drinking coffee, I'll say that verse, because I really want to learn that one. And that's how fasting functions. And, and if you give up uh, at, at noon, if you don't make it to the end of the day, it doesn't matter, right? Because did you spend more time with God in the morning than you would have without fasting, okay? It's, it's not about proving how tough we are. It's not about, you know, sort of a test of endurance. It's about building our relationship with God. So that's the fasting part of it. The other side of it is that we have a prayer guide. And you can pick these up on the way out today. Uh, we'll also email them. I'll send an email this afternoon to, to everyone. So if you're online, you'll get that email. Um, if you are not on our email list, please uh, leave a comment in, on the video there or email the church office and we'll make sure you get it. And the, the prayer guide this this month, this year, for the month of March, is in the, uh, we're going to be focusing on Psalms, okay? So we were doing Psalms on Sunday morning Bible class and Wednesday night Bible class, and, and this is an opportunity for us to sort of internalize the Psalms. And so we're praying through the Psalms. And uh, it, we start off with lament, and it's a week of lament, and you go, well, that's not really what I was looking for. Um, but it, I, I really want us to see this as a journey. Psalms are not all happy, clappy songs. Okay? Um, some of them are, and they're great, and we tend to sing those the most. But Psalms take us, the book of Psalms, all 150 of them, take us from places that are dark, places of despair, and they lift us up in other places to the very throne of God. And so as we go through this month of prayer in the book of Psalms, we're taking that journey, and we're spending time in Scripture. And maybe it doesn't relate to us, but maybe it will help us relate to someone else at some point in time, or we need it down the road. And so uh, please pick one of these up. If we run out, we'll print more. And uh, if you prefer, it'll, it'll be emailed to you at the, um, this afternoon. So I hope everybody is able to access that. I think that's all the updates that I have this morning.
So, <clears throat> we have one more week after today in the fruit of the Spirit. But before we get into that this morning, did you know the Olympics are coming up later this year? Yeah. Everybody know where they're going to be held? Yeah, right? Paris. Anybody planning to go? <laughs> nope? Okay. Now, as an Australian, our Olympics are shorter than the American Olympics. Our Olympics only go for one week. Because in the second week, I've heard that there's some track and field competition that takes place, and we don't do that. <coughs> unless, unless there's someone that's exceptional, you know, that's outstanding. Maybe they were born overseas and came to Australia and they can run or jump in a way that the rest of us can't and they're competitive internationally. But generally speaking, Australia just has a one-week Olympics. And it's the swimming. There's a little bit of rowing and canoeing and whatever, but, but we're there for the swimming. And, uh, and so we kind of get excited about that as that comes up. And so I know a little bit about swimming. Not because I can swim, but because I've watched the Olympics every year, every four years my whole life, uh, celebrating the occasional gold medals that Australia gets there. What I know about swimming is that the world records keep getting broken. The world records keep getting broken. And, and, and why is that? Are humans evolving? You know? um, can I swim faster than my grandparents could? Not necessarily, but I think what happens is that uh, certainly there's, there's a lot of work that goes into diet and nutrition, but also training techniques. Um, perhaps there's more identification of people that are talented and they're put into those programs and, and they're able to excel. But when this happens, there's this assumption that we're going to just keep getting faster and faster. Does anyone really think that at this Olympics, a world record will be set that will never be broken. Right? I mean, in, in our heads, in theory, it should happen at some point, right? That, that we reach a maximum point at which the human body can go. And yet, even though we sort of have that idea in our head, we know that, or, or we still have this expectation of bigger, faster, and better. As I say, sometimes it's due to the athlete and, and the work and preparation that they've put in, or their body dimensions, whatever it might be. But there's also technology. I think in every sport, technology changes. You would think swimming, when you look at the athlete up there with almost no clothes on and a pool of water, like how much technology could there be? And yet, the technology that goes into the pool, how still the pool is, how still it stays, whether the, the splash from one person flows over into the other lane, from one lane flows into the other lane and disrupts them. You know, what, what can they do to make it perfectly still, to make the times as fast as possible? And you'll hear the commentators talk about whether or not a pool is a fast pool or not. 
And you're like, it's all wet to me. You know? And, and, and yet the other thing is, you know, the swimsuits. There was a, a time a few years ago where they were sort of wearing body suits instead of Speedos. You know, well, there's Speedo body suits. But you know what I mean? And so they, they help them glide through the water and go, go faster than the people the previous year. And it became a little bit of an arms race. Like the countries like Australia that really invested in this stuff had, you know, state-of-the-art body suits to help them swim. But, you know, another country, maybe Bulgaria or somewhere, they didn't have. They had the, the first generation. Australia and the US were racing in second generation. And the other countries would only call the first generation. So they were slower because their swimsuits were different. Whatever the cause, we're expecting Olympic records and world records to fall at this Olympics, aren't we? Wouldn't it be strange if it didn't happen? But I want you to imagine for a moment if before this year's competition, it was announced that the prizes would be awarded to the person who finished with the slowest time. Now, you have to keep moving. You can't just stand on the blocks, okay? And, and wait, you know, it's sort of like a test of endurance. You have to keep moving, and there'll be, you know, slow-mo replays to make sure that you'll keep moving, but it's going to be for the slowest person. Wouldn't we be excited about watching that? Okay. How long could we make a 100 meters race last? You'd get value for money. You could have ads in the middle of it. Like, think of the money the networks could make. It sounds crazy, right? Because nobody wants to say, oh, we went to the Olympics this year and everyone was slower than the year before. We want to be faster, right? You buy a car. You want it to be slower. You want it to accelerate slower. You want it to handle corners worse than the previous car? No, it's got to have something new and fancy and updated, doesn't it? And so we want the same with our athletes, to be stronger, not weaker. To go out and conquer the world, and in doing so, somehow represent us. And we'll take some credit as well. But bigger, better, stronger, faster actually isn't the only storyline that captures our, our attention. It's not the only thing that we admire in people. In the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000, there was a, a swimmer um, from Africa, from Equatorial Guinea. Okay? Very small country. You may or may not be able to find it on a map. And this swimmer set a new record. Okay. Oops, let's go. Oh, my slides didn't make it in there. Okay, that's all right. We'll live without that. Um, Eric Musambani, he'd never seen an Olympic-sized 50-meter swimming pool before he made it to the Olympics. Okay. He didn't qualify. He didn't meet the time to qualify for the Olympics. Uh, through a program that sort of said, we want to be inclusive of countries that don't have opportunities that, you know, the leading 
rich countries do. We want to include them and invite them. And so he and some others were invited. And uh, he stood up on the starting blocks of this. He'd, he'd had time to practice at the pool, but you know, for the first time in a race, in a 50-meter pool, and he has to go all the way down and all the way back. The top athletes are going to do this in under 50 seconds. Okay? There and back in under 50 seconds. He stands on the block. There's two other competitors that are deemed to be about his level, and they're all in a heat together. And the tight, they're, they're getting ready, and the two other competitors dive. But the starting gun hadn't gone. And so Eric, or Eric the Eel as he became known, is left on the starting blocks by himself. The others are disqualified. And so he now is in a heat at the Olympics by himself. And the starting gun or whatever buzzer goes, he swims down. He swims back later, he's to say that the last 15 minutes, 15 meters was so hard, he wasn't sure he was going to get there. And um, he did it in about a minute, I think I wrote this down, a minute 52, more than twice as long as the, the person that would ultimately win the race. But you know who we remember today? Not the person that won the 100 meters freestyle at the Sydney Olympics. I'm sure there are people that do remember him. But many more people remember Eric the Eel. The man who had only practiced in a lake and in a 12-meter hotel pool before coming. And he could only get that pool from 5 to 6 a.m. before coming to the Sydney Olympics. Of course, he was didn't make it through to the next round, his time was too slow, but he set a record for the slowest heat time ever. But the reason he's famous is not just because he was slow. It was that afterwards he had the ability to sort of laugh at himself. He had the ability to go along with it, to be grateful for the opportunity that he'd been given. He was admired for his determination. He'd only started training for this eight months before the Olympics. Um, he was admired for his humility to compete in an event that he had no chance of winning. To stand up there knowing that he might be humiliated. Took humility. And um, he was admired because he did the best that he could. Now, he never swam at another Olympics. There was a visa problem in 2004, 2008, he didn't make it. 2012, he came back as the coach of the Equatorial Guinea swim team. He, in other competitions, got his time down by about a minute over the, uh, what he swam at that Olympics. And so he persisted and uh, became somewhat competitive. So... Not the greatest, not the strongest, not the fastest, but perhaps the most famous and the most admired or one of from that Olympics. Some of you may also be familiar with the 1979 Coca-Cola Coca Super Bowl ad featuring Pittsburgh Steelers' Mean Joe Green, right? Know what I'm talking about here? That, that as Mean Joe Green hobbles off the field injured, heading for the locker room, some random kid that happens to be in the tunnel, I don't know how much he paid for that kind of pass, but he, he's in the tunnel and, and he 
he says, can I do anything to help you, Mean Joe? You're my favorite player. I think you're the greatest. Mean Joe's like, no. He says, well, take my Coke. And so he does. And he just drinks it straight down. And the kid, you know, sort of has lost his Coke. Mean Joe isn't talking to me. So it turns away a little disappointed. And then Mean Joe says, hey, kid, catch, and throws him his jersey. What makes this an iconic ad? And it's been remade in so many different, different places. What makes it such an iconic ad? I, I don't know. I mean, there's probably experts. But I think one of, the, one of the things that catches our attention about this ad is that the player is nicknamed Mean. What do we expect somebody whose name is Mean Joe Green to do? Right? He's more likely to bite the kid's head off, isn't he, than, than do anything kind. Yeah, right? And, and so here's a player that's ferocious on the field. He ends up in the Hall of Fame. He plays for a lot of years for the Steelers. But he shows some unexpected kindness and even gentleness in return, in response to the kindness that the child shows when he himself is feeling badly. And we go, that's not what I expected from him. Right? That's not who I thought he was. I, I've watched him out there on the field and I had this impression and now he's acting and behaving in this way and I'm surprised by that. I like seeing that side of him. And so all of that brings us to this week's Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and, yes, gentleness. Okay. You guys are getting good now. So, gentleness is another one of these fruits that I don't think everyone values. Right? I said this about patience. We don't all want to be more patient, really. Okay? We want things done now, on our time frame. We want everyone to, to work by our time frame. We recognize that that you know, may have systemic problems if everybody has that same attitude, but if we could arrange it for everything to be on our time frame so that we never had to be patient, I think most of us would take that. And so, but we recognize for the good of society that patience has value. I think it's the same with gentleness. Gentleness isn't something that jumps off the page and necessarily says, yes, I want more of that. Can you picture the church sign advertising out the front that said, come and join us. We'll help you become more gentle. Yeah. In terms of marketing, how do you think that would go? We could put a lot of things on that sign that might attract more people than gentleness. Just the first three fruit on this list. How about love? Want to find love? Come here. Want to find joy? Come here. Want to find peace? Come here. Want to be more gentle? Come here. Well, three out of four ain't bad, right? And yet gentleness is here on this list as a, a fruit, as a virtue given to us by the Holy Spirit. When we think of gender stereotypes, gentleness seems to be 
at the other end of the spectrum from the macho, self-sufficient, tough guy. And to many guys, I think Christianity can seem like a weak religion. It can be helpful, I think, as we think of the, the value. What is the value of gentleness? To consider Paul's choice of this term in his culture. From the reading I, I could do, it was pointed out to me that the Greeks valued this virtue highly, but not by itself. You see, by itself, they thought it was pretty weak, but they liked it when it was paired with a compensating strength. Okay? So if you could pair gentleness with a strength so that you sort of are in the middle with both you know, uh, traits, they thought that was a good place to be. And so, for instance, rulers should be gentle with their own people, but stern with others. Okay? Uh, another example would be that laws should be severe, but judges should show leniency. And so, you have gentleness, but it's sort of mixed in with this concept of um, you know, toughness as well. And for them, gentleness is a mark of culture and wisdom. But they were afraid that it could lead or degenerate into self-abasement, that the person just become a weak person. And so as long as that didn't happen, they could find a place for it. They recognized the need for leniency, the need for kindness and, uh, in, in the world. I think Jesus provides a great example of what this looks like, but not in the way that we might expect. While we usually um, expect a king, think of a king in a story, I'm thinking of something like Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, Robin Hood, that sort of era. Okay, that's in my head. You can pick whatever age you want. But uh, the king comes to power, seizes the throne, and he does so, you know, at the height of his powers. He does it through manipulation of politics, of building alliances. He might have to fight a sword battle up on the parapets of the castle, you know, in order to, to defeat the king's, the current king's right-hand man, and then take the castle. And now he is the king. And he, he has a long and successful reign. But at the end of his life, he goes out to battle just one time too many. And he's older. And he's slower. And someone else is faster and stronger. And the king takes a, a, a blow in battle. And he doesn't recover. And he dies there because of his weakness on the battlefield. And so he takes the throne because of his strength and he loses his life because of his weakness. And I think that's how most stories of that type are going to run. But in Matthew chapter 21, we have the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus is being treated as a king, approaching the capital city. And Matthew chooses 
a scripture from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And he says this as a commentary on Jesus coming into the city. You see, we know this scene, don't we? I know we're coming up on Easter at the end of the month, but we know this scene as Palm Sunday. As the crowds are waving the palm trees, as they're laying them down, as, as, as Jesus rides on a donkey into the city. And they're cry, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're excited. They're looking for radical change. What's going to happen? We know that he walked on water, that he calmed the storm, that he healed the lepers, he gave sight to the blind. We know all the speeches and the teaching that he gave. We know that he cast out demons. And he did all that up in Galilee, out there in the boondocks. What's he going to do now that he's here in Jerusalem, in the city of power? This is going to be exciting. Praise God, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. But Matthew provides this commentary. He says, Say to the daughter Zion, Jerusalem, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not on one of those medieval you know, war horses with big strong horses with all their armor on them and the finery and the feathers and the plumes intimidating other armies before they even approach. Jesus comes on a donkey. You wonder if the donkey sort of brayed, you know, a little, you know, as they're walking up there, you know, like, I mean, this is anything but majestic. Jesus comes gentle. Now, the word gentle here, I know as we've gone through this series, we're sort of, it's a bit like English class, but the word gentle here can also mean meek, as in blessed are the meek. And our growth groups are going to talk about the Beatitudes this week. It can also mean humble. So we have three, three choices. Gentle, meek, humble. And they're all kind of interchangeable and Choose whichever one fits best. Jesus is gentle, meek, humble, riding on a donkey. And, and then that's how he becomes king, so to speak. But the scripture then explains to us that Jesus' death was his actual victory, not his defeat. In Greek thought, I don't think they really saw it this way, but it could be explained to them that Jesus' gentleness in coming into Jerusalem was compensated by the strength that he showed on the cross, defeating death as he rose from the dead in time. And so the virtue of gentleness or meekness shouldn't be confused with weakness. Jesus had all sorts of power at his disposal, but he chose not to use it in order to avoid the pain and the shame of the cross. Because he was strong enough to go to the cross. And so sometimes I think when we talk about gentleness, we kind of picture, oh yes, I work at a butterfly farm. I hand feed them the finest of pollen that I gather from my orchids that I grow in my greenhouse. Right? And, and I'm a very gentle 
person. I wake up to wind chimes blowing you know, outside my window in the morning. And we, we picture this kind of gentleness. But in fact, gentleness is something that, that anyone can show. And I think it's this idea of humility that is important to it. That it's about, I, I, I view the, perhaps it's helpful to think of the opposite. I'm thinking of the opposite as kind of aggression. Okay? Thinking is the opposite as aggression. As imposing my will upon others, as doing things my way, of, of being, I have to be in control. Okay? It's not about butterflies and kittens and warm woolen mittens. You know, it's, it's, um, it, it's about, am I willing to go along with others? Am I willing to love my neighbor? Am I willing to do what's best for them? Or am I living life to have things the way that I want them to be? You see, as people, we have a lot of strength and power at our disposal, all of us. James chapter 3 and verse 1 describes the ability of, of our words, of our tongues to destroy, to corrupt the whole body and to, set on, and to set the whole course of one's life on fire. You see, we have power. We have power to hurt. We have power to control. We have power to abuse, power to accumulate. We have also power to help, power to encourage power to inspire others. God isn't telling us to avoid the gym. He's telling us to be considerate of those around us. God's telling us to place our strength that we have, to place that under His Spirit. To give up control of ourselves, to depend on Him. I want you to consider briefly John the Baptizer. He was a fire and brimstone preacher. <laughs> he, he was out in the Jordan River outside Jerusalem and, and the crowds would come out from Jerusalem to see him and, and he would tell them, repent, you guys are messed up, right? And, and it was the religious leaders that would come. It was the Roman soldiers that would come. It was the regular people and he would say, you need to get your lives right. You need to make changes in your life. In fact, he was so unafraid, he was so fire and brimstone that even the king is having this illicit relationship, affair, and, and John the Baptist names him and says, that shouldn't be happening. The leader of our country shouldn't be doing that. That's a disgrace to God. And, and anyway, word got back to the king and more particularly to the king's mistress and yeah, it cost him his life. John was a tough guy. He wasn't scared of anyone. He'd say what needed to be said. He'd point people to God. But when Jesus came along, you know what John said to him? Yeah. He said to him, He must become greater, and I must become less. You see, he could say, look, I'm really, I've got some disciples of my own. I've got a reputation. I'm getting the crowds. Like, I really think I can make this thing work. I can take this somewhere. You know, we can do a book tour. You know, we can grow this. I've got a television deal coming up. But instead, he said, no, I'm willing to be, to decrease so that Jesus can increase. 
he adjusted his agenda to fit Jesus. And so not pushing back and trying to ensure his slice of the publicity pie is an example of gentleness. We could apply this in so many areas of our lives, couldn't we? Our marriages, our parenting, our workplaces. Where are things where we say it just has to be my way? And gentleness says, well, let me listen to what you have to say. One way we see gentleness, though, applied in Scripture is when sin, disagreements, and confrontation arise in the church or between Christians. We find the fruit of the Spirit at the end of Galatians chapter 5, verse 23. If we come down just a few lines later, chapter 6 begins, and it begins this way. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, take them outside the building and stone them, send them away and tell them not to come back until they got it fixed up. Get their lives right. Or, we do what the Bible tells us. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Okay? Restore that person gently. Another way might be to say, restore that person humbly. Why humbly? Because it goes on and says, watch yourselves because you may be tempted. Right? So, so be humble, be gentle with that person because the chances are that you or I aren't that far away from falling into that sin or another one ourselves. In fact, we may have already fallen into the sin of pride as we point out that person's shortcomings or struggles. Similarly, when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25, he begins there and says, Opponents must be gently instructed. This is Paul writing to a young preacher. He says, you're going to run into people that oppose you. How are you going to handle that? They must be gently instructed. Again, in 1 Peter 3 and verse 16, this time he's defending one's faith to critics outside the church. And he says, you know, be prepared to give an answer for what you believe. But he says, do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with gentleness and respect. I think we need the Holy Spirit for this. Right? I, I think it doesn't come easily. So, so much we're told to get bigger, get stronger, get faster, stand your ground, be independent, be on your own, watch out for yourself because no one else will. Like, do what needs to be done. Be a person of action. Right? And, and we're, we're fed these sort of um, messages over and over again. And sometimes we need to be told, be gentle. Even when you're right and the other person's wrong, be gentle. Even in the church where you're standing up for what's truth, be gentle, respectful, humble to the other person. And then if that's what happens here in God's house, take it to your marriage. Take it to your family. Take it to your workplace and be gentle. 
It's not the only thing to be. It's part of everything, isn't it? As with all of these fruit of the Spirit, choose the moment. But we have a king who came into Jerusalem, gentle, riding on a donkey. He was crucified on a cross because he was the king of the Jews. And while it looked to the world that that was his defeat, three days later was his ultimate moment of victory. Jesus doesn't do things the way that we expect. And likewise, we shouldn't do things necessarily the way society expects God's people to do them. Let us now turn our hearts.